Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the editor of Global Capital. Each week, we'll take you through some of the most interesting stories in the capital markets, all of which can be found at globalcapital.com. And this week, we're taking a look at the equity capital markets. It's looking like we'll be on for a record year for volume of deals in ECM. Last year's record of $1.16 trillion of business, that's according to DealLogic, looks set to be eclipsed this year with $1.11 trillion already done by the end of September. That sort of volume has, of course, put investors under a lot of strain as they struggle to analyze each and every offer put their way, but it has allowed them to be more selective about which IPOs they buy. And despite the volumes of shares issued, many deals have been canceled, postponed, or have tanked in the secondary markets. To help get around this problem, the investment banks that bring companies to market have relied more heavily than ever on cornerstone investors. The cornerstone is an investor that commits to a deal early, usually in large size, in exchange for a guaranteed allocation of shares once the IPO is priced. Um, It should be said, typically, sellers believe this makes underwriting a deal easier and helps guarantee that the shares go on to perform once the initial public offering, say, is over. After all, if 80% of the shares are already spoken for before book building even begins, then the hope is that there will be more demand for the shares once they are listed, keeping the price high. But new listings across the EMEA region are relying more than ever on cornerstone investors, and this is starting to irk people in the market, and not just the investors who are unable to get hold of shares during book building. This week, I spoke to Aidan Gregory, our equities editor, and Victoria Teela, our equities reporter, to find out if reliance on cornerstone investors was making the equity capital markets better or worse. Uh, hi, Aidan. Hi, Victoria. Can you describe um, in a bit more depth than I have done what a cornerstone investor actually is, what they achieve, and uh, what sort of institutions are they? Yeah, sure. So a cornerstone is a large investor that could be an institutional investor, something like a sovereign wealth fund or a wealthy individual person who commits to subscribe to a certain volume of shares, for example, 200 million pounds, and in return, they get a guaranteed allocation of those. And that's quite prevalent in Scandinavia, um, where they have these massive pension funds that play a really large role in the equity capital market. So, for example, Volvo, the, the big one that's coming up, it will be 71% allocated to cornerstones and anchor investors. There was Stuart Gogan and True Caller, both above 80%. So that's really where, where we see the most of it. So that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Volvo prices uh, on the day we're recording. Uh, which is uh, 29th of October for anyone listening in the future. Um, now, I guess it's it's interesting you say that about the Scandinavian market and pension funds. I suppose um, that's a market where I think these these are investors with a lot of money, but probably the issuer base is a little smaller than in other markets. And a cornerstone, I think I'm right in saying, will sign up for quite a large chunk of each IPO. Um, what, what, how much do they tend to sign up for on a deal, Aiden? 
It varies, really. I mean, there have been some cornerstones that have been like hundreds of, we're talking hundreds of millions of, of dollars on some of the, the largest IPOs. What sort of percentage is that of a deal typically that a cornerstone will buy? Um, again, it also varies, but they, they do have the, the, uh, the slightly strange side effect of, um, of basically taking most of an IPO. I mean, it just means there's very little stock left for any, any other investors. I mean, in the case of Volvo Cars this week, I think around 70% of the stock is go, has gone to cornerstones, which means that it has the mm. kind of side effect that you end up with basically having a bit of a club deal wouldn't there's very little stock left for other marginal buyers to to get in the IPO. It might be important to say there that it's not 80% or 70% of one cornerstone necessary. So there might be several there. There was one I remember where there was um, four pension funds who each subscribed for 200 million euros of shares. So they share that. Yeah, Volvo Cars has attracted like I think over a dozen anchor and cornerstone investors or around a dozen. Right. And this is, this is spread, I mean, we're talking about Volvo here quite a bit because it's in the market now, um, but this is now spread beyond Scandinavia and the other markets where it was uh, a traditional um, traditional technique, I suppose. Is that right? Um, so, yeah, they, they've been around in the Nordic region for many, many years and they're, um, they're a very traditional way of doing IPOs in, in Sweden, Norway, like Denmark and, and Finland. Uh, they're also... What I'm very popular in Hong Kong and other regions like the Middle East, but they never tended to get used on IPOs in Western Europe so much in the past, apart from only the very largest deals. I mean, like the like Glencore's IPO in 2012 famously had over like a dozen cornerstones, uh, but that was a giant IPO and they really weren't sort of commonplace at the time. Whereas now, I mean, they've seemed to have become much more popular over the last two years to the extent that they we now see them featuring on lots of European IPOs, like not just the biggest deals, but mid-cap IPOs as well. And this is all happening at a time when there are just a record number and record volumes of uh, IPOs being done. Uh, is there a sense that an IPO is now reliant on having cornerstones to get done? Because of course, some of these deals have still been pulled, haven't they? And they've been cancelled and postponed, especially this autumn when investors were complaining there's just simply too much going on for them to look at. I wouldn't say they're completely reliant on them. We also see a lot of deals that get completed without cornerstones. And we've we've analysed the aftermarket performance of quite a few deals with and without different amount of cornerstone allocations. And they've performed very, very differently. There are some without that do really well and some with that totally just drop. <laughs> and... Mm. But it does certainly give the issuers a certain kind of feeling of security, I would say, in this quite difficult market where they see that so many deals get pulled or don't perform very well, just a, from a psychological point of view, a uh, feeling that that kind of could save the deal and carry it across the finishing line. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, surely one of the points of having cornerstone investors and taking a big block of stock down like that and you would think like locking it away because you know these these should in theory be big strategic investors you would hope um it's interesting that there's been there doesn't appear to be any correlation between locking shares up with cornerstones and uh secondary market performance not all cornerstones are subject 
to lock up agreements. It depends on the jurisdiction and the investors involved and, and the terms that they demand in order to get their guaranteed allocation. I mean, if there are lockups involved, it can have the effect where you've got big chunks of stock that have gone to these institutional investors who are subsequently locked up and can't sell. And this clearly like has quite a dramatic impact on, on the liquidity of a particular IPO if big chunks of the deal are locked up and therefore less stock is available to, to be bought in the secondary market. I mean, I guess that, that makes um, makes it a problem also if there is no lockup or and then whoever was the big corner zone suddenly decides it doesn't fancy the stock anymore and all of a sudden there's a chunk for sale and that can't do much for the price. Yeah, although sources have told us that it's kind of like the reverse problem that when you do when you have a load of cornerstones in an IPO, you give a sort of maximum amount of stock to the people who like love the company the most. Uh, and this is actually kind of not, like not a good thing because who's basically then then ask the question, well, who's going to buy more shares in secondary if the biggest fans of the company? have been completely satisfied and don't need or want any more stock, then where are the marg- where's the marginal demand that's going to drive up the share price in the aftermarket going to come from? Okay, so so that's that's one complaint that people have and a valid one, obviously. But, but what else are people complaining about um, when it comes to using cornerstones in IPOs at the moment? So Aiden has mentioned that problem of liquidity in the aftermarket, but people also told us that they fear that the price discovery in the first place doesn't work quite as well if there's too many cornerstones. Why, why is that? What, what does price discovery, how does price discovery suffer if there are cornerstone investors? Because I mean, surely why... they are committing to buy shares at a certain price. I guess they're just doing it before anyone else. Of course, but the price... The prices are discovered by a lot of people bidding and then you see at what levels the books are, how much subscribed or oversubscribed to. So if we have fewer investors bidding on this amount of stock because a certain portion will definitely go to one, it doesn't work in this free bidding way. So the price might actually be too high in the end. I see. So we're suggesting that other investors, non-cornerstones, are incentivized to overbid to try and get some sort of allocation. Is that what we're saying? Exactly, that could happen. Yeah, okay. But it's not just those practical um, concerns that people have. We've also encountered a lot of strong feelings where investors, especially investors, say it's just unfair. So if we know that such a large part just goes to the same 10 big boys, why would we even bother to try and participate? And they also feel that they're at a disadvantage if they take their time, do their analysis, read the perspective thoroughly, if somebody else just chips in and snatches their share away. So that was a, a large point we've also also encountered. Can they can they not just buy the shares in the secondary though? I mean, isn't this the whole the whole point that yeah, they might get a lower allocation um, in the actual IPO, but if they really want the shares, they can go and buy them in the secondary market. I would say it might feel a bit undignified to do that. (laughs) Like you're kind of pushed out of that primary allocation by the large cornerstone shareholders. The aftermarket might suffer. And now somebody says, well, then why don't you just buy in the aftermarket? So that would be my explanation for it. 
I mean, what do you think, Aiden? I guess I guess some of these uh, accounts must feel like they're missing out on uh, what's known as the IPO pop, right? The um, the the fact that it's priced at a discount. By that point, the share price could have already traded up 10, 20% from the IPO off price, and you missed out on the on the key IPO discount, which is you know one of the main re- one of the the main attractions of of buying IPOs. Um, so, so what are the other complaints? There's one last point I would say, and that's that some of the people we spoke to have an eye on the US competition. And they say that this is another example of the European market being a lot less flexible in a way than in the US with those cornerstones. So what's the difference between the US and the European IPO scene then? Um, how, how, do, how do cornerstones behave in the US or do they not have them? They are They are sometimes used in the US, albeit very rarely but they're not the done thing at all and the us handles much much larger ipo volumes of ipos than europe and the us equity markets generally are much more dynamic and like front-footed i mean the big institutional investors i would say will probably just buy shares wherever they're not going to you know you and i can buy US shares or European shares. Um, it's not going to be something that inhibits a big pension fund, for example, or big institutional investor. Um, I, does it, does it, do we really think it makes the US market a better one to operate in? They don't have cornerstones. Isn't this just uh, a case of, I guess, some investors being able to use their, I don't know, buying power to, to get better terms, which is surely the the whole point of markets anyway, or maybe not the whole point of markets, but it's a key feature of markets. Yeah. I don't think it's the, the complaints about sort of how overcomplicated Europe's equity capital markets are. Don't just stem from, from cornerstones. There, there are lots of reasons why that is the case. Uh, but the, I mean, the fact that they don't widely use cornerstones in, in the U S but we now do in, in Europe is being chalked up as just kind of another reason why Europe's European, ECM will, will never be as dynamic as, as the US is and has been for many years. This this has obviously become a problem for some investors during a time of huge, huge amounts of deals. Uh, are we likely to see fewer cornerstones uh, once the deal flow recedes? And do we have any idea of when that might be? That's, of course, always difficult to predict. But right now we see that some investors say, if I don't get a cornerstone, I won't invest. And combined with a difficult market in which issuers might be a bit nervous because they see other IPOs getting pulled, they might be more inclined to then allocate cornerstones. But since we've heard quite a few strong feelings from investors, I think at some point it might turn to people saying, if there are too many cornerstones, I won't invest. And if that pressure reaches a certain point, then the seller side must react to that. And it might just naturally lead to lower quantities of cornerstone investors, I would say. Well, there was kind of an opposing opinion in the story you wrote about this, which I thought was interesting, which was it seemed to be that uh, some people in the market think that the sellers, rather than the investors saying, I won't participate if there are corners, too many cornerstones, um, on the sell side, uh, some of the some of the buy side was saying, "Well, the the sellers are just lazy. They won't. They'll 
they won't even try and bring a deal unless there are cornerstones. Um, I guess that that was uh, where I was thinking of a sort of an over-reliance. And do you think that that sort of feeling is widespread amongst buyers? Uh, yeah, I certainly um, feel that there's a desire now in the market for the use of cornerstones to be scaled back. I mean, ironically, in sort of, um, they were, the reason they originally sort of put forward as a, as a way of doing IPOs is they're, um, they're much better suited to quieter, like more volatile, difficult markets because they are a great way to de-risk an IPO. When you get all this, all this mass, this massive amount of demand at the very outset, and it also convinces other investors to come in. You know, it's a great way to sort of de-risk the book, uh, but it does severely inhibit like proper price discovery, which is ultimately the job of, of why you hire a syndicate of banks to to run your IPO. Like, I mean, the syndicate desks they talk to the market every week. Their their job is to have the finger on the pulse of what how investors feel about valuations and and sentiment and the, the the best way to gauge that is still by having an open like free and fair book building process well what are the banks saying about this then because this this whole cornerstone um i don't know wave if you want to call it that it really plays into their hands uh if, if i can draw a comparison with the bond market we've had uh some bond issuers complaining that um, this is earlier in the year, that they shouldn't pay banks fees for underwriting their bonds because they didn't have to underwrite anything anymore. They could just sell the whole the whole bond issue straight to the ECB or some large chunk of it uh, under under some under a quantitative easing program. So there was no no real no real risk anymore to a bank to bringing a deal. Um, I suppose the, the 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 cornerstones are the equivalent of that in the equity market. Um, but that's that's just to the advantage of the sellers, surely. Are they? Is there any sort of sense that they're listening to these concerns and are going to do anything about it? They do. Uh, the cornerstones do sort of defeat the point of of equity underwriting. Mm. But do the, do the banks care? Um, I guess that's my question. They're going to earn the fees, um, regardless. I mean, that's right? all that matters. So surely, it's better for them to have gone. Yeah, right. So, but I mean, have banks told you this week at all that they're listening to these concerns or do they not care i mean i guess they're the ones in control aren't they yeah uh, i think several bankers have said that the use of cornerstones does need to be scaled back uh, but the, they do, but they do have it but they do have a place in they do have a place in equity capital markets i mean this week the ipo of volvo cars wouldn't be getting done were it not for the fact that the company could put together a group of like around a dozen Swedish cornerstone investors because the the international demand for the deal wasn't particularly strong and they had to restructure it. They reduced the size of the IPO. So uh, they do have a place. They, ha- they have a place on deals that can't fail or are too big, too big to fail, like massive privatizations mm-hmm. or, you know, long-awaited uh, IPOs of national flagship companies like Volvo Cars that, where they just can't fail that's where Mm. cornerstones have a place but but outside of that um there does seem to be a growing sentiment that they need to the use of them needs to be scaled back 
there's also the point of the counter example. So a few issues have banks have pointed out that there were a few large IPOs in Europe that did work successfully without cornerstones. Yeah, there there have actually been quite a few. Uh, I mean, you can get a, a a significant IPO done in Europe without using cornerstones. And a zealous group, sort of Belgian specialty chemicals company, they raised 1.5 billion in September this year without any cornerstones. They just did a completely sort of open open book build. Okay, so there's plenty to suggest that. Uh... This is unnecessary padding, perhaps, or unnecessary protection uh, by banks. And I, I guess, you know, to your point earlier, they've started to acknowledge that fact too. Yeah, yeah, they have. And it, it, it can be very unnecessary. Well... If even the parts of the equity capital markets that benefit from cornerstone investors are starting to say they're a problem, perhaps we'll start to see their usage reined in a bit in the months to come. Don't forget, you can read our coverage of this issue in full at globalcapital.com and much more besides. Thank you to Aidan and Victoria for joining me and to Gerald Hayes, our producer, for editing this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. It's free. There's a new episode out every Friday and they're available on all the major platforms. You just need to search for Global Capital there and you'll find us. Email us too. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast and what you think about the issues we discuss. And if you want to hear us talk about anything in future editions, then let us know. Just drop us a line at podcast at globalcapital.com. We'll be back with more stories from the capital markets next week. So thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.